listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Before we get started, just a note that this episode talks about depression, substance use, and suicide. If you or someone you know is struggling, please reach out. The National Suicide Prevention Line, 1-800-273-8255, is available 24-7. You can also text HELLO to the crisis text line 741-741. Charles Aubrey Rogers was a compassionate friend and a talented artist. He was also the 20-year-old son of Anne Moss Rogers. On June 5th, 2015, just over four years ago, Anne Moss received heartbreaking news. Charles, who had struggled with depression and substance use, had died of suicide. In an attempt to begin making sense of her heartbreak, or to at least feel just a little less alone in her grief, Anne Moss started writing. She began her blog, Emotionally Naked, and also wrote a newspaper article about her family's experience that went viral. Grief is intensely personal, and sometimes it's intensely private. For Anne Moss, she made a conscious decision to go public. She went public with her grief and public with the story of Charles's life. Inspired by her son's innate skill for connecting with others, she's now dedicated to helping people who are struggling with grief, suicidal thoughts, and substance use. Anne Moss, welcome to Grief Out Loud. Thank you so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me, Jaila. From what I've read about your son, Charles, he was a brilliant artist, extremely compassionate, and really social. What do you most love for people to know about him? You know, I love people to know that he reached out and connected with others. And he did so in a way that made him very memorable. It was actually a short story about how he connected with others. And it was told to me by a young lady after he died. And she said that she suffered from depression and she was in high school and she barely made it to school one day, but she got there and she was struggling and she's standing in the hallway and she said, you know, I'm surrounded by all my friends. They're all giggling and laughing and telling stories. And she says, I'm not really participating. And I look up and I see Charles staring straight at me he just walks up to her and he's standing right in front of her and she says miss rogers i knew who charles was because everybody did but i didn't know he knew me all of a sudden he breaks out into a rap song (laughs) on the spot just for her and she said miss rogers of all the things anybody's ever done for me That is one of the most memorable moments. And when I am struggling, I remember that connection that he made that I really needed right when I needed it. You know, he was real smart and funny and talented, but I think that was his greatest gift. And and Charles died 
just under five years ago, back in 2015, and grief, you know, changes constantly. How has grief shifted for you over the over the years? Uh, you know, at first, it's this big, ugly, insurmountable thing that sits on you and you fight to get it off you. And of course, you know, the weight of it is just, you can't, and then you realize you can't fight it. It has rhythm of its own and you just need to learn to manage it. How it's kind of transformed over time for me is that it's become something beautiful and really the only tie I have to the one I love. Sometimes now, when the grief hits, I kind of welcome it. I want to experience the love of my child. Yeah, I've heard some people talk about this shift and evolution that can happen where right at the beginning, that grief is so overwhelming, it's everywhere. And then there's like this moment or many moments of maybe getting a glimpse of what it could feel like to not have it be such a constant. And there's some fear or trepidation around letting go of the constant grief because it can feel like a letting go of the connection. Do you remember that happening for you? I did that letting go piece, like it was too far away. And the further away I got from it, like in a new year, meant that I was leaving him behind. So yes, I did feel that. And it's sort of a guilt that I was moving ahead with my life. So yeah, there are a lot of conflicting emotions in that transformation. I think that we all have a relationship with our beloved dead. And that relationship transforms and evolves over time. And I think there's sometimes people that make you feel guilty for that. I just flat out refuse to (laughs) even insinuate. I'm like, I did bury my child, but I didn't bury his memory. And speaking of love, you've mentioned in one of your talks that when Charles died, you had this tremendous amount of love for him. And you didn't know, like, where do I invest that love now? What do I do with that? How has that worked for you? Wow, that that's a tough one. In my case, I was angry at heroin. I was angry at depression, you know, not people. Like you said, I had all this love, nowhere for it to go. So I kind of poured it into other people. And I really, at first, and still, crave helping others. That felt like I was investing in his kind of a legacy because he connected with others and I was carrying forward that legacy. So it felt good. It's pretty amazing to think about that oftentimes grief gets portrayed in this way of it being like a time of just needing so much support and that what gave you a lot of sense of peace and comfort was to help others, to reach out to others. Yeah, it did. What what I found strange and what I didn't expect when I lost Charles, you know, you have the memorial service, your house is full of people. And then after that memorial service, people just kind of dropped off the face of the earth. I knew people would go back to their life. So, you know, I understood that. But What I didn't understand is for a good six to nine months, nobody was calling me to do anything. 
you know, I, I know it's because they don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They don't want to invite me somewhere because I might not want to go. I, I finally just had to be very direct with people and say, I'm crushing over here. I really, I really need to go do something. And they started to open up and include me in things, even if I didn't participate a whole lot, if I just kind of sat there quietly and listened, it just felt good to be around other people sometimes and not in my own head, in my own house, all isolated and alone, because we're really not meant to go through this by ourselves. I always advocate that other people should tell a close friend and communicate that to other people. So that close friend should say, what do you want to talk about when you're with other people? What subjects do you not want them to ask you about? You know, are you looking to get out some? Are you looking for just people to reach out occasionally, call, email? What is it you're looking for? And try to be a little bit more specific because in grief, we can't think of what we want, but we can pick them, sometimes pick from multiple choice. <laughs> Like, would a walk be helpful or invite some helpful or direct questions helpful? Then it's easier to sort of choose from that menu of support options. That's perfect. That's perfectly said. And I loved it when people came by and said, your grass is long. I know it needs mowing. And we're going to come on Saturday at 10 o'clock. Is that time good for you? That was amazing because there was no way I could think through all the steps that needed to happen, like naming a time, you know, right. <laughs> just, it was all I could do to get up and get dressed and take a shower. And then I'd be exhausted and go, I've got the whole rest of the day to face. And it, it just all seemed totally and completely insurmountable at first. I just thought about all the people who'd been through this before me and they had survived and I will too, is what I told myself. And, you know, then I was curious what this grief journey looked like. You know, what are the stages of grief? <laughs> and so I did Google what are the stages of grief. You know, I just had no roadmap whatsoever. I think that's why the, the stages of grief theory has been so pervasive, despite so many people in reality saying, those don't really work for me, grief is not linear. I think there's still that automatic instinctual wanting to find a recipe, an outline, a guide, a how am I going to get through this? And you know, for me, that helped. I mean, even though it didn't work out like in that nice little linear fashion, I, I see some similarities and it helped me kind of get a lay of the land mm. and it, it let me see that in the future there was a life for me that wouldn't be as intense and devastating as it was the moment I was going through all this. Right. That it won't feel and look like this forever. Right, exactly. So even, uh, you know, I haven't even gone back and looked at it again, but it, it gave me a, it gave me some peace. And, and with Charles dying of suicide, what do you know and understand about suicide now that you didn't know when he first died? Well, when he first died, I thought 
what, how could I be such a crummy mother that my child would check out on me? You know, why wasn't my love enough? What did I do wrong? And you take it personally when it's not personal. It's a really interesting point about that idea of taking it personally, because I think about when, you know, a kiddo's parent dies of cancer, they don't tend to take the cancer personally, but they can sometimes take their parent dying personally and be mad at that parent, whether that's like rooted in logic or not, but like, how could they leave me? How could they die? So they sort of take that part personally. But what you're saying with, with how Charles died when folks die of suicide, that how the person died can feel so personal. It does. It feels intensely personal. And what I would come to find out later is that suicide is just a person trying to go through unimaginable emotional pain in an irrational state of mind. They think of themselves as a burden and they think the world would be better off without them. That you as parents, well, wouldn't life be easier if I wasn't here? That's not true, but in that irrational frame of mind, that's what they think. I didn't know that at first, which is why I decided to become more educated on what suicide was. And I I needed to talk to a lot of people with lived experience so that I could understand it better. And that really helped me. And when you say lived experience, you mean be folks who have dealt with suicidal intensity or have dealt with a suicide crisis before? Exactly. So um, in some cases, it was people who struggle with thoughts of suicide on, you know, semi-regular basis. And in other cases, it it was people who survived a suicide attempt. They would tell me that they were glad that they were alive and that they were very grateful. You know, some people will say that they're determined to die when they're suicidal. And that's a myth. By talking to people who have thoughts of suicide, I recognize that myth, that people usually don't want to die and that typically they want to tell someone. I just didn't really know all that until I actually decided to go on some out-of-the-darkness walks and other events where I met people that had lived experience that was a big part of my healing. How was that specifically helpful for you in, in processing Charles's death? I stopped beating myself up because they would tell me that they weren't doing it because their parents were mean to them or did something wrong or that it was internal and the result of any number of complex reasons from environmental to family and medical history. He didn't do this to hurt me. He didn't do this because I was a bad mother. And what's interesting about suicide, even people that hardly knew him, everyone feels responsible. It feel like I miss signs. I should have done this. I should have done that. And while I knew I felt that way as a parent, it surprised me when people that really he was just an acquaintance with 
felt the same way, like they had some responsibility to have been able to recognize that he was struggling. Yeah, it's curious how it can spark this sense of all powerfulness. Like if only I had done this, or if only I had done that, I could have had the power to change this situation. Right. And we can't control other people. We can control ourselves and sometimes we can influence others. But even when we intervene on a suicide, what we're doing is helping them save their own life. And I had to ultimately face up to just that. I could not control what he did in the end. And holding myself accountable wasn't doing anybody any favors, least of all me. You made a really conscious decision to be open and public about Charles's death and the struggles he had with depression and anxiety and, and substance use. What's it been like to be so out in the open about it? It was terrifying at first. <laughs> Absolutely terrifying because I would post things and on social media, if you don't get a lot of comments, you think, you know, oh, they, they didn't see it or this is an awkward subject. And when I speak sometimes to particular groups, they'll be really, really quiet because you're, you're talking about grief. You're talking about insurmountable loss. You're talking about suicide. You're talking about addiction. So you're talking about a lot of stigmatized subjects. I've gotten used to it now, but it still delivers a bit of a, a bit of a jolt. Yeah, I can imagine that you're sharing something so open, so personal, and then crickets. Exactly. And I wrote that first newspaper article, and the editor called me while I was driving in the car. And they used the word committed on the headline. And I remember wanting to suggest that she change that to died by suicide instead of committed because it's not a crime, but a public health issue. But I was about to have a panic attack because it had published. She called to tell me it published and I hadn't shown anybody. So only one person in the world had seen the article and that was somebody I asked to look over it. So my husband didn't know I wrote it. My mother didn't know I wrote it. And now it was going to be on the front page of the Sunday newspaper. The terrors. And when I turned it in, I'm like, oh, yeah, I feel great about this. I feel wonderful. Oh, what a relief. And writing it was so wonderful. <laughs> but as soon as she called to tell me it published, I was terrified. So I pulled over and I had to pull myself together, did a lot of deep breathing. And I decided that I was going to send the article to my husband and send it to my mother and my employees and my business partner and my in-laws. I was going to wait for their response. And then after that, I shared it on social media. Then I closed the computer, turned off my phone, took my dog and went, went down to the river. And I said, I'm not looking at social media for 24 hours. And it went viral. And I didn't understand why it went viral until I started reading the comments. And there were thousands of comments. And I started reading them. And then I realized other people were reading their story in mine, their sister, their brother, their mother, their aunt, 
their child themselves. And that was the first time I realized that more people were struggling with this than I had realized. I decided to go in that direction and I started a blog called Emotionally Naked. Basically, it was my public diary. I had had a diary when I was younger and my brother would always break into it and um, blast those tender little <laughs> prepubescent, you know, love affairs that I had in my mind to, you know, oh, it was so humiliating. <laughs> so I stopped writing in my diary. And this time I decided I'm just going to go public in the first place. And then I don't have to worry about that step. Yeah. And then you, you have a book coming out this month, right? The Diary of a Broken Mind. It came out two weeks ago. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. And what distinguishes your book from your blog, Emotionally Naked? Well, it puts it all together in a timeline and a complete story, kind of from the beginning and the end where I, what traits I saw that may have been alarming. And the first four chapters are tough, so I wouldn't recommend Diary of a Broken Mind for like newly bereaved parents. I think there are exceptions. There is a parent who lost a son seven months ago and she's reading it, but I would say she's the exception to that. I think it helps people understand the why and the addiction and suicide. I've also included my son Charles's lyrics so that we can see it from his point of view. I didn't read any of these lyrics until after he died. So I was unaware of how long he struggled with thoughts of suicide and how guilty and how shameful he felt for his drug use. I got to know my child better in death than I knew him in life. And then I had to kind of resolve that because I felt a little guilty I was really close to Charles and how come I know him better now than I did when he was alive? I've, I've come to terms with that, but that took me a while to, to, to sort of resolve that, but I had some answers and I do end it on a message of hope because I needed it too. And also it sounds like a way to share Charles with the world as well through his lyrics and kind of piecing together his experience based on those. Exactly. I mean, he was such a loving, wonderful person. And I wanted the fact that he made a connection with others to be an important theme in that book as well. As we get to the end of our time together, thinking about grief and grief is a really personal, unique experience, but grief is also a social experience, a family experience. As you mentioned for you, it was really important to go through grief with other people. What's it been like for you to be grieving as part of your family and your community? Has, has your way of processing this come into conflict with anyone in your circle? You know, I, we went to a grief support group immediately, my husband and I, and we learned to accept where each other was at any given time. And I think that there were times I needed to explain to my mother where I was or how I, why I was reacting a particular way. 
because she didn't understand, but to have patience and understanding that she was watching her child suffer and she didn't understand it. And some of the things that may have made other people angry didn't make me angry because it came from a place of love. But there are people that because I've been so public, there's even somebody that recently called me a shameless self-promoter. And that's the minority. Most people are encouraging me, asking me to be part of their grieving process to support. And that, that's really more important to focus on. I'm stuck on this idea of someone saying that you're doing shameless self-promotion when grief is so much a part of who we are and who we become. So there's no way to promote self without also not promoting grief. But you know what I mean? Like it's just so much fully a part of who we are. So how could you talk about your work and the things that you're passionate about and things you want to make a difference in the world about without also including yourself? Exactly. And, you know, I just had to tilt my head and go, I, there's, I've just got nowhere to put this. <laughs> and it's just going to be a funny slide on one of my friends. <laughs> because how else do you take it? And then I just got to compartmentalize. You know, if you're not laughing, you're crying. Exactly. Sometimes you're laughing and crying at the same time. Those things can yeah, coexist. I've done that. <laughs> Well, Ann Moss, I'm I'm grateful for you for talking with me today and for your commitment to being so open and public about Charles and his life and his struggles and making a difference for so many other people in the world who are also facing similar situations. Well, thank you for taking on this bold topic and actually having a grief podcast. Is that that's pretty bold in and of itself. Well, listeners, I am going to link to all of Ann Moss Rogers' work in the show notes. So you'll find a link to the book, Diary of a Broken Mind, also links to her TED Talk and to her blog, Emotionally Naked. So I'm sure there's all kinds of opportunities for people to connect with you there at your your blog. Yes, and annmossrogers.com too. Great. Well, thank you again, Ann Moss, for being part of the show today. And thank you. And listeners out there, thank you for being part of our community. We would be talking into the void if you weren't out there tuning in. If you have an idea for a topic or someone that we should be talking with, please reach out. You can connect with us at help at Dougie.org. And for those of you who have been listening for a while, know that we are produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children, which is a nonprofit serving children, teens, young adults, and their adults dealing with grief. And as a nonprofit, we rely on the donations of the community to keep going. So if you're drawn at all to support the show, you can help us out at dougy.org forward slash grief out loud, and then just click the blue donate button. Thanks again for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.